Well, good morning. Thank you. I am Carl Flowers, not Chef Carl. <laughs> I will not be cooking for your Christmas party. <laughs> uh, just so we're clear on that, let me. Uh, isn't it wonderful that we have this technology that allows us to um, to share, to meet, to visit, in spite of the um, uh, perfect. Thank you so much, Don. In spite of all the um, things that are going on, you know, as I listened to that uh, uh, testimony about the uh, schools and how everyone in the country is trying to use COVID to shut down, the enemy is using COVID to shut us down, yet technology is expanding us and we're able to uh, reach everybody. Is that working, Dave, or no? John? Okay. We're okay. Uh, you should. You have some handouts here, uh, or if you didn't get handouts, Rod's got some in the back to pass around. And you might want to amuse yourself, or you maybe you have already with the seven questions along the left-hand side to see how much you know about the, our founders. Uh, most of us, as I look at our, um, uh, uh oh, I, and I just got disconnected. So that's all right. These things happen. Well, I. Um, um, well, first of all, I want to welcome you to another wonderful day in this sweet land of liberty uh, where we have freedom and independence, uh, thanks to the founders and thanks to all of the veterans in the room. This week we celebrate Veterans Day. If you're a veteran or if someone in your family is a veteran, would you raise your hand? We give you a round of applause. Okay, I am now back on, there I am, okay, that's me. Let's see if we can make this work this time. I, I just came back on. I got, I lost my connection somehow, but, oh yeah, you got to do that again, don't you? Okay. Um, I, uh, my, my profession is a uh, trainer and speaker, and uh, in the last 20 years, I've probably done about 17, 1800 one-day training sessions until COVID came along. Uh, I've spoken at the FBI, the U.S. Senate, NCIS, BP, ExxonMobil, and hundreds of companies you've never heard of. Um, I was, but for this, this week, for the first time in 20 months, over the past 20 months, I did 139 Zoom training one-day sessions all around the country. But this week, for the first time, I went to Vicksburg, Mississippi and did a two-day session in person for the U.S. Corps of Engineers. So um, that's good. Uh, all right, I need to turn my video off. Is that right? On? Okay. All right. Okay, well, hold on just a second. Well, it says I'm sharing already. Let's get rid of that. Let's, let's try this again. Here we go. They'll figure it out in a minute. They're good at this. They taught us. I, I go to the previous class. We're the ones who make you late all the time. <laughs> We're also the ones who won the Golden Donut, which I'm sure Harry showed you last week. Uh, <laughs> um, and your guys taught us how to do this. So um, with a, I can do that. Oops. It was there a minute. Um, it's knocking me offline. That's not good. I have to reconnect now. It says my uh, connection is no good. Okay. Um, 
we're going to talk today about the founders. Now, many of you have, uh, there I am again, many of you were around, uh, as I was, for the bicentennial. Remember the bicentennial? Um, This, we're coming up on, uh, let's try this again. See See anything? We see Emmanuel. The, we're coming up in five years on the 250th anniversary of our country. So those of us in the room live through the bicentennial. We're going to make it through the, the uh, 250. You know what they call the 250th? Sesquicentennial is 175. It's the semi-quincentennial. The semi quincentennial, yeah. So centennial is 100, quincentennial is 500, semi half of 500 is 250. The U.S. Congress, in a rare moment of wisdom about five years ago, formed a committee to uh, celebrate the semi quincentennial, and they decided to name it USA250.org. So that's good, right? Uh, what we want to talk about today is who are the. F- oh, good, it's on the screen. Okay, so. Um, That's what I just told you. There we go. There's that. There's that. So we're up to date. Perfect. Um, Talk to you about in God we still trust. Our national motto is in God we trust. In fact, if you've ever visited the U.S. Congress, the Capitol building, this is the House of Representatives. uh, And way up there at the top above the American flag, above the rostrum there, you can't see it very well. I'm going to zoom in on it. It says in God we trust. Uh, that is our national motto. In fact, at the door to the Capitol, we have um, also, I'm, I'm going to get rid of these other pictures I have here. Okay, we have this uh, at the entrances to the Capitol, that plaque that says, In God We Trust. Uh, they never show this view on television. Have you noticed that? They never show that. You know, after when George Bush made the speech after 2001, almost every newspaper in the country, I looked at a bunch of them, they showed George Bush at the rostrum. On the Dallas Morning News, they showed In God We Trust, and they they cropped the picture that way. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, this is our national, national motto, and we... Uh, have it, I think, in name only sometimes. So we're going to do a little Know Your Founders quiz today. There are probably thousands of references I could give you. I won't do that. Uh, I found that when I gave references on screen, people wanted to write them down, so I put them all in print here for you so you can kind of just follow along. And the quest seven questions on the left side will be answered as I go through the presentation. If you don't pick up on one of the answers, I'll be glad to. And John's handing out uh, other copies if you don't have one. So, uh, when we talk about founders, what do we mean by founders? Who are they? What did they say? What did they believe? And then we'll also do a little bit on the symbols and the mottos of our country. So that's all in here, what, what they mean. Uh, what do we mean by founders? When historians, I'm just, I just consider myself an amateur historian. When historians say for the word founders, what they're basically talking about is the men and women who were influential during the founding era. So anybody who said or did anything that made any difference at all, we consider them a founder, whether it's the wife of one of the uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence, whether it's a, there's a, a woman named Mary Goddard who printed the first declaration in Baltimore. Uh, we consider all those people founders. Now, what's the founding era? Uh, 
Most historians say 1770 to 1789, because 1789, George Washington becomes president, and now our country is established. But there are people who say, no, it was until the second war with Great Britain, then the founding period was over. Other people say it wasn't until after the Civil War. Certainly Lincoln saw the Civil War as the end of the founding period. So I I don't pick hairs here. I just say uh, we call any of these people founders. uh, So that would include the first 15 or 16 presidents also. When we say signers, we're talking about the 56 specific signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, there were more people that were involved in that Congress, but for one reason or other, had to go back to their states, but 56 signed them. So when you hear the word signer, those are the names on the document. When you hear the word framers, in 1787, uh, there were 70 delegates to the Constitutional Convention, and 55 of them signed the document. Now, the signing of that document wasn't quite as important as signing of the Declaration. Some of them just weren't available when the signing was around. There were a few notable ones that refused to sign. One of them would be Patrick Henry. Another was George Mason. Why did they refuse to sign the Constitution that they worked on? Because they believed it gave too much power power to the federal government they, uh, uh, before we had the Bill of Rights. So yeah, they, it wasn't like they didn't think this was a good thing. They just thought they needed to rein in the federal government a little more. Give us some more Patrick Henry's today. So uh, let's, take, let's take a look then about what they said. Does anyone, and we'll start with one of the symbols here, does anyone know what is inscribed on the Liberty Bell? I'm sure many of you have been to Philadelphia. You've seen this there. Anybody know what it says? It says the Liberty Bell, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> and the reason they call it the Liberty Bell, I put it there in, in the, uh, it was used as to ring out abolition. Um, inscribed across the Liberty Bell is a quote from Leviticus 25.10. It says, proclaim liberty throughout the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof. So right on our one of our most prominent symbols, we have a quote from sacred scripture. And if you go there, you can see that. They just don't point it out to you. They don't talk about it much. Uh, So who were these founders, and where were they educated? Well, of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, the majority of them went to three different schools. They either went to Harvard University in Boston. They went to uh, Princeton University down in Princeton, New Jersey. In fact, John Witherspoon, one of the signers, was the head of Princeton University. Or they went to William & Mary College in Williamsburg, Virginia. That's where uh, Thomas Jefferson went. Uh, They got there what's called a classical education. And in those days, all of these were religious schools. So uh, 39 of the 56 founders, 39 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, had what we would consider today the equivalent of a seminary degree. Okay? 39 of the signers had a seminary degree. Uh, think about that for a few minutes. What did they read? What books did they study from? University of Houston, about 30 or 40 years ago, did a study of all of the writings of all of the signers and the founders, and they said the founders quoted from the Bible in all their writings and letters and everything four times more than any other source. Four times more from the Bible than any other source. Why? That was one of the most prominent books of the time. That's the book everybody learned from. Do you know until 1950, the Bible was used here in the city of Dallas, Dallas Independent School Districts, to teach reading from the Bible. I have a copy of one of the books that they taught from. Uh, They had what we called a biblical worldview. They saw the world from biblical point of view. Uh, they were not, as as uh, as we'll discover, they didn't use the evangelical terms that we use today. Uh, 
but they had strong beliefs in who God was. They also quoted from Blackstone's commentaries. Blackstone was an English writer who wrote about the law, and he quoted from the Bible. They also quoted from a guy named John Locke, uh, who talked a lot about freedom, and a lot of their ideas came from him. He also quoted from the Bible. So all of the things that go into the founding come from biblical sources to begin with uh, in the founding of our country. Now, Alexander Hamilton, if you've seen the play or heard about it, it's not my favorite kind of music, but I did watch it on video. Uh, He wrote the Federalist Papers. He was the major writer with John Jay uh, and James Madison of the Federalist Papers, which which is the handbook to the Constitution. They were selling the Constitution and putting these out while it was getting approved. He was also our first Secretary of Treasury, shot in a duel uh, by Aaron Burr, unfortunately. Uh, He said you have to look at first principles. And in any document in any discussion, there are certain primary truths. He called them first principles, which everything else depends. So what were the founders' first principles? The founders had several things they believed that come up over and over again. They believed the rights that we have as human beings and as citizens were granted by God. The rights are given to us by God, not by government. Prior to this point, the king's gave people certain rights. The founders said, no, we already have the rights. And government's job is to protect those rights, not to take them away. Okay? Uh, they said government by consent of the governed. So, so the United States was the first country to have a constitution where the people said, we will decide what our laws are, not the king, not the rulers. We get to choose the laws. That's what we, the people, means. They believed in the rule of law. So we have a set uh, list of laws. We don't follow men. We live by the law. They said in order to make this work, you needed two things. You need virtue. What do they mean by virtue? Character, integrity. You had to be a person of your word. How could we make sure? See, we don't have a democracy. Democracy is where majority rules and the minority gets trampled on. We have what's called a republic where we send people to Austin or we send them to Washington, D.C., who vote on our behalf. And there's a representative government, and then they follow the rules of law. Now, they said, if you're going to send representatives, you better send people who have good character. (laughs) So, So how do we know they have character? The first 13 colonies in their original state charters, all 13 original states, had a provision that said in order to serve, in order to hold public office in this state, you must be a member in good standing of a local church. They didn't specify what type of church, but they believed that the local church gave people morality. Gave the, we, we were accountable. We're all accountable because we're members of this body. So if someone's accountable, then they're going to make good decisions on our behalf, aren't they? Okay. Second thing they said is you have to have a sense of morality, a concept of right and wrong. And where did they find that? They found that in the, the biblical laws. This was, this was morality. And there are absolute truths about, about life. So that's their, this is what the founders basically believed when he said they had a, a biblical worldview. 
So in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, uh, these are the references that we, we would attribute to God. They talk about the laws of nature and of nature's God. So basically what the founders said was there are certain laws in nature. If you drop something, it falls, the law of gravity, right? There are certain things that are obvious. One of the laws of nature, by the way, is there is not one species of life on this planet that kills unborn children, except humans, of course, okay? So the founders said there are certain laws, and we'll look, we can look at nature. We can look at things that happen, and that's the way things should happen. And then they said when, when there are other things, God specifies, because man chooses to disobey some things, so then God gave us some laws, basically the Ten Commandments. Okay, uh, That's when they referred to laws of nature, nature's God, those are the laws they're talking about. They said all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. They said they appeal constantly to the supreme judge of the world. So the words the founders used for God were providence, the supreme judge of the world, the great creator, the divine author. You see these words coming up. They're not really words we use today. But in their time, those were acceptable words, and those were words they talked about. Reliance on the protection of divine providence. Uh, I have a second a follow-up talk to this one, which maybe sometime next year I'll be able to share with you when uh, Wayne is not available, uh, where, I, where I can show you all the divine providential things that happened in the American Revolution. But let's just go back to some of the founders. They said, all men are created equal, endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody gets a fair shot here. We all get to pursue happiness. We're not granted happiness, but we can pursue it. So I want to share with you just about five founders, five different people, uh, and most of them you know. These are all very familiar names. George Washington, I want to show you what a man of prayer he was. Washington was would be known as a man of prayer. Thomas Jefferson, a man of intellect, wrote the Declaration of Independence, uh, but it was his brain. It, that's, that's what kind of governed his life. Ben Franklin, uh, uh, who was a common sense person, John Adams, a family of integrity, and finally Patrick Henry, a man of passion and emotion. So we'll deal with each one of these individually on the next pages. Let's start with the founder of our country, the what we call the first president, uh, George Washington. Uh, George Washington, a couple things to know about him. He was a colonel in the Virginia militia during the French and Indian War. In fact, he probably caused the French and Indian War. He, uh, the, the, if you think of the geography of the East Coast, the British colonies were down the seaboard, and then you have the Allegheny Mountains, and west of the mountains, the, the British, uh, in the French Indian War had taken, um, well, first of all, the French had Canada to begin with. The French had Canada. The French were coming down the backside of the Allegheny Mountains. So those of you who were raised in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, you know Joliet, Marquette, all the French explorers that were settling in those western states, what they called western states at that time. So the British wanted to push the French back, so they sent George Washington with, with some militia to uh, uh, establish a fort at current-day Pittsburgh. He got there. The French had already established a fort. The French sent out a patrol. He ambushed them. They sent out a big force. He built Fort Necessity. He had to surrender it, and he uh, uh, was taken prisoner, and then they, they paroled him. But that was in 1753. Uh, there's a statue of George Washington today in London, England, because he was a hero to the British 
at that time. Um, uh, he was also, when his, when his older brother died, he became one of the largest landowners in the colonies. He had Mount Vernon and, of course, other properties. Uh, one of the richest men, one of the best horsemen in the colonies. He became commander-in-chief of the Continental Armies in 1775, before we declared independence. He was then served as president of the Constitutional Convention. He, he was on the dais. He did not sign the Declaration of Independence because he wasn't there. He was fighting the war. Uh, and he was the first president, of course. Now, man of prayer. Oh, what does the message say? Well, it's probably... says what? He probably can't do it, though. I probably have to... Uh, no. But... Oh, okay. Good job, good job, John. I don't know how you did that, but great job. <laughs> and I'm supposed to know this stuff. All right, George Washington frequently, uh, frequently issued uh, standing orders prohibiting gambling, cursing, drinking, and camp. He had a very moral camp. He didn't want any loose living in, in his camps. Uh, he had many, many days of Thanksgiving fasting in recognition of, of the, when the army was saved or when they won a victory. So, And he, he's credited with the first Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Um, he said in, in, at one point, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly implore his protection and favor. That is in the first Thanksgiving proclamation. Uh, I heard something today that um, a, a college in the East is trying to do away with Thanksgiving because it was a day when we killed people or something. But the real Thanksgiving proclamation, whatever the original date of Thanksgiving was, all the proclamations say nothing about that. Thanksgiving is about giving thanks to God. That's all the proclamations will say that. In his general orders, he would say the fate of unborn million will now depend under God on the courage and conduct of this, of, of this army. We'll do our best, but we know it's under God. So let us rely on the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being. So he always included those types of phrases. Now, there's a famous picture of George Washington praying at Valley Forge. There are people who like to tell you this is a legend, didn't really happen. Um, this, is, this is a later picture of it. The earlier picture, uh, this is a Freeburg painting in 1999. I, I believe it hangs in one of the Smithsonian museums. But there's a, the question is, is this fact or is this fiction? Did this really happen? Um, this is an earlier picture, and uh, if you look there, in I, I, you probably can't see it on your paper, but you can see that guy peeking around the tree. The reason we know this happened is because that's farmer Isaac Potts. Isaac Potts was a Quaker farmer who lived near Valley Forge. One of his cows escaped, and he was looking for it, and as he's looking through the brush and the woods, he hears on the other side of these uh, 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 undergrowth, he hears somebody talking out loud, and he sneaks up to see who it is and he sees Washington on his knees. Oh, by the way, Isaac Potts was a Tory. He was against the revolution. He was in favor of the king. He looks at Washington on his knees. He recognizes him as George Washington, listens to him praying out loud, asking God's help. And he writes in his diary that night, with a man who prays so fervently, how can we win this battle? Okay. So it's not our side that said he was praying. It's the Tories who said he was praying. That's farmer Isaac Potts. Uh, if you go to uh, New York City, 
when George Washington was president, the Capitol was in New York City, and and uh, his pew, he attended church at St. Paul's Church. Now you see in the background there the uh, new One World Trade Center, uh, but that the St. Paul's Church is right next to the to the World Trade Center. When when New York burned in 1776. This was the only building left standing, St. Paul's Church. And when the, when the World Trade Center fell down, parts of it fell into the graveyard of St. Paul's Church. This was an aid station for uh, 911 for, for many months. Uh, when you go and visit there, you'll see George Washington's pew. Uh, because that's where he worshipped. In those days, you bought a pew or you had one. And if you go to Mount Vernon, you'll see a replica of the pew. Sometimes they take it out of St. Paul's because they have other events in there, and so they, it, it's, it's an immovable thing. Uh, but they have it at Mount Vernon. Now, Mount Vernon is not owned by the federal government. Mount Vernon is owned by We the People. There are committees of women in every state who raise money to support Mount Vernon. So you will find books and things at Mount Vernon that you won't find in other places uh, of the federal government. Thank you so much, Rod. That's very nice. Uh, At his farewell address after serving as president, uh, he died two years later. George Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are ind- indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim tribute of patriotism who would labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. He's anybody that subverts morals and supports religion, and who, who subverts religion, is not really a patriot. Okay. Washington had 13 warnings in his final address. Today in schools, they take out four or five of them because they mention religion. So they're censoring the first president. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, the man of intellect. Thomas Jefferson uh, was a lawyer, scientist, planter, architect, musician, philosopher. Uh, he, he had a great uh, knowledge. Uh, the Library of Congress was formed originally with his books, his library, which he, which he sold to the U.S. Congress. Uh, he went to the College of William and Mary, where he met Patrick Henry. Uh, Patrick Henry, James Madison, James Monroe, uh, Washington, uh, Jefferson were all acquainted with each other because they were all from Virginia. Many of them served in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Most likely, uh, he practiced law starting in 1767. Most likely, he was there when you see Patrick Henry in the lower right-hand corner. They're giving his famous, give me liberty or give me death speech, Undoubtedly, uh, Jefferson was in the audience. He was a member of the Burgesses uh, for for six years there. Uh, he was 33 years old when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Then he became the second governor of Virginia. Uh, he served as minister to France, 1785-1789. So he was not in the United States when the Constitution was written. He had nothing to do with the Constitution, nor the Bill of Rights. He sent some notes to James Madison, his friend, and said, I think we should include these things. But that's all. He didn't write the the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. He was then our first Secretary of State under George Washington, uh, then became the second Vice President under John Adams and the third President of the United States. That's, that's Jefferson's career. If you visit the Jefferson Memorial, this is fabulous rotunda. The statue is probably three times life-size. And in the rotunda, uh, you see those inscriptions above Jefferson there and on the wall. So above him, it says, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. So he, he, he gives credence to God. Three of the four porticos have statements that give credit to God. So God who gave us life gave us liberty in the Northeast portico. 
Uh, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? If we stop saying they're from God, we, we're going to lose them. Okay. Uh, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Southwest Portico, this is from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created by a creator. In the, oops, typo, Northwest Portico, Almighty God has created the mind free. All attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens are a departure from the plan of the holy author. These are all inscribed. Anybody can go read them in the um, uh, Jefferson Memorial. In addition to writing the Declaration of Independence, he wrote uh, a summary of the rights of British America before the Declaration of Independence. He wrote notes on the state of Virginia. These are his, will be considered books or major writings. And then he wrote an interesting book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, many people will call this, and he wrote this in 1820. He died in 1826. Uh, Many people say this is the Jefferson Bible, and he was uh, rewriting the Bible. What he did was took the example of Jesus Christ and wrote it for the native populations. So this is a book he wrote that he said if the native populations would learn about this man, uh, they would have better lives. So that's, that was the intent. It's sometimes called the Jefferson Bible, and then people will say, well, see, he was trying to rewrite the Bible. No, he was trying to put it in words that the natives could understand, Native Americans could understand. Jefferson, before he wrote the Declaration of Independence and practiced as a lawyer, defended uh, runaway slaves in the late 60s. He defended seven cases of runaway slaves seeking freedom. Now, it's well known that Jefferson had slaves. Many of these people had slaves because that was the way that it worked in the South at that time. He said this, everyone comes into the world with a right of his own person and using it at his own will. This is what's called personal liberty and is given to him by the author of nation because it is necessary for his own sustenance. So he he understood they needed to be free. My belief is many of these guys were caught in a system they didn't know how to fix. They wanted to fix it. I gave you several other quotes here in in the thing of, of things they said about slavery, but they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to change it. By the way, slavery was not an American institution. Slavery, of course, has existed since time began. Joseph was sold into slavery, so we didn't create it. Slavery in the United States or in the American colonies, the British colonies, was a British institution. It was British ships that went to Af- British ships and Portuguese ships went to Africa, and they contracted with African tribes to sell them slaves from other tribes and bring them to America. They brought them to the islands first and then up, up there, up to the colonies. So it was a British institution. Uh, that the founders knew they wanted to get rid of. When Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of Independence, um, there was a committee, John Adams, Ben Franklin, uh, Robert Livingston, and Thomas Jefferson were all in the committee. They made some changes to what Jefferson wrote. He didn't like them, but they were mostly stylistic changes. But then Congress made dozens and dozens of changes. So when he wrote the Declaration and they debated it, when they agreed to be independent, They made that vote on July 3rd, but then they argued about things in the Declaration and changed them. One of the changes they made was this. Jefferson had a slavery grievance. There are 27 grievances against the king. The king has done this. The king has done that. He has waged war. He has harbored troops here. He has hired mercenaries. He has taken away our laws. He has taken away our juries. There's a whole list of grievances. This one is not in the Declaration. It was... 
but North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia took it out. He, King George, has waged war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people, those would be the African slaves, who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation. So Jefferson put in there, we got to get rid of this, and they put it as one of the grievances of the king. South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia wouldn't sign the declaration unless we took that out of there. So the founders said, okay, first we have to have a country, then we got to fix it, right? We know there's things, which they did 87 years later in the Civil War. Uh, he is determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. That also was taken out of the Declaration. But we have this in writing. It's in the Library of Congress. It's in the National Archives. These things exist. I didn't make them up. <laughs> right. So these were all deleted in debate. Okay. Uh, here's the founders. Patrick Henry said, I believe a time will come when an opportunity will be offered to abolish this evil. Thomas Jefferson wrote, the ab abolition of domestic slavery is, is a great object of desire in those colonies where it's introduced in their infant state. So they all wanted to get rid of it. Uh, uh, John Adams said, slavery is an evil class of magnitude. Ben Franklin an atrocious debasement of human nature. George Washington, I wish from my soul that the legislature could see the policy of a gradual abolition of slavery. They were all trying to figure out what do we do? How do we get rid of it? Thomas Jefferson is also credited with saying the separation of church and states. The separation of church and states, I call it an unfortunate metaphor. It is not in the Declaration. It is not in the Bill of Rights. It is not in the Constitution. It is not in any official U.S. founding document. Okay. Uh, doesn't appear in any of those places. What happened was when, when Jefferson was president-elect, Jefferson was a Congregationalist. That was He went to the Congregational Church. And the Baptists in Danbury, Miss, uh, Danbury Massachusetts were afraid that Jefferson was going to make Congregationalism a state religion. So they wrote him a letter asking about it. He wrote a letter back. This is personal correspondence, personal letter uh, to the Danbury Baptists on January 1st, 1802. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declared their legislators should make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that's what the Bill of Rights says, make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Okay? Meaning that the church, the state can't interfere with the church. Okay? Well, unfortunately, that, that letter, that letter got taken out of context, as I said, an unfortunate metaphor. Okay? Uh, this is the U.S. Capitol. Cornerstone was laid in 1793. On July 2nd, there's a notice that appeared in 1795 in D.C. paper, which basically said, since there aren't many churches in town, we're going to hold church services in the U.S. Capitol, which they did up until the Civil War. Okay. Uh, December 4th, Congress approved the use of the Capitol building for church services. So an act of Congress said it's okay to have church in, in, in the Capitol building. And in fact, the day after or two days after he wrote that Danbury letter, Thomas Jefferson attended church in the U.S. Capitol as he did every week. Okay. So, so for him, for him to say there's churches, it's just totally taken out of context. Okay, every Sunday. So we had those uh, services in the U.S. Capitol until the Civil War. All right, so that's Thomas Jefferson. Let's go to Ben Franklin. 
Ben Franklin, uh, one of the well, most well-known Americans of his time uh, in, in the seven, late 1700s. People, more people around the world know about Franklin than anybody else. Okay? He was a man, known as a man of science. He was a man of common sense. If you've ever read any of his writings, you would know that. Okay? So he was a writer, a printer. A pu- whoops, right, sorry about that writer, printer, publisher. Uh, ben Franklin went in 1757, representing the, the colony of Pennsylvania, to England, and he spent almost 20 years in London as a lobbyist, representing Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and a couple other colonies in front of Parliament. In fact, when they passed the Stamp Act, uh, he got it repealed. Uh, Franklin lobbied to get it repealed. So he was basically a lobbyist for almost 20 years. But in 1774, he uh, made the mistake of he got a hold of some letters that were written between the governor of Massachusetts and someone uh, in London, and he got a hold of them, and it showed the attitude of the British toward the American colonists, and Franklin arranged to have them published in the papers in London. And it so, in, it so inflamed the, uh, the parliament that they basically kicked him out of the country. They said, you're done here. So he comes back in 1775, and he lands about two weeks before the uh, Continental Congress meets, and everybody says, well, Franklin ought to be on that thing. So he was, okay? He's most well-known. He was a delegate. He was on the Committee of Five that wrote the Declaration. Then during the war, he went back to be minister to France. Uh, John Adams lived with him for a while. He came back to be the sixth president of Pennsylvania, which would be the governor of Pennsylvania in our terms. And he was also a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. So Franklin's one of six people who signed both the Declaration and the uh, Constitution. Um, what did he say about religion? Now, look, Franklin was a deist. He was no way near an evangelical. He believed there was a God, and God had something to do with things, but he really wasn't in contact with them at all. Uh, he, he wrote to Thomas Paine, who wrote uh, a great pamphlet. He said, if men are so wicked with religion, what would they be without it? <laughs> He proposed for education in Pennsylvania, history will also afford frequent opportunities of showing the necessity of public religion and the excellency of Christian religion above all others. Uh, I, I, I doubt whether we'll meet Ben Franklin in heaven. I don't know that for sure. We don't know about anybody. I believe I'm going to be able to talk to John Adams. I'm going to be able to talk to George Washington, Patrick Henry. I'm not sure about Franklin. <laughs> okay. But we don't know what decisions he made when he was young. And, uh, but, but he was a fervent supporter of Christianity. Okay. This is the Constitutional Convention of 1787. There's George Washington as the president. You see Franklin sitting there right in the center. Uh, there and Now, Franklin never made speeches. He did behind-the-scenes stuff. He organized things and talked to people. Uh, but here's what he did. You see, him, you see he's got that cane. He's 82 years old at this point, which is a long time to have lived in the 1700s. He has gout. He can't really stand. He's got a cane. Uh, and what's happened was the convention was at a standstill. They met for about a week, and nothing was happening. People were arguing. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't come up with any ideas. Franklin stands up and makes one of the longest speeches of his life, recorded by James Madison, who later became president. Madison was the secretary of the convention and the author of the Constitution. So this is what Franklin said. Franklin stands up and says, How has it happened that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of our contest with Great Britain back in the 1770s, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. 
And now have we forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I've lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this building no better than the builders of Babel. So he called for prayer, and they started having prayer, and we got a constitution. And they continue to this day praying in Congress every day because of that. John Adams, we know more about the revolution from the writings of John Adams and his wife Abigail than anybody else because John and Abigail Adams copied every single piece of correspondence that they wrote to anybody. And they made it a habit, and their son John Quincy Adams continued the same thing. So they wrote everything down. There were no copy machines, of course. So they wrote it all down. Many of their letters were lost overseas or in the transit, but they had copies of what they wrote. Uh, He was a lawyer. He defended the soldiers of the Boston Massacre in 1771. Uh, So the soldiers, and he acquitted all but one of them uh, because he believed that the facts are stubborn things and the facts didn't prove that they were murderers. Uh, He was a delegate to the First and Second Continental Convention, Minister to France, Ambassador to Great Britain, First Vice President, First Second President of the United States. about law, he said, the study and practice of law does not dissolve the obligations of morality or of religion. He said, you can't practice law unless you have a concept of morality and religion. Wrote that in his diary. About freedom, he said, the right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty, it is not in the power of man to alienate this gift. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Adams called us the mob. (laughs) He did not like tarring and feathering. He did not like burning things down. He did not like the mob. That's why they didn't want a majority, because a majority is ruled by passion whereas a representative government, a republic, is ruled by logic. And so he said that logic is moral and religious people who bring that logic there. Uh, John Abigail Adams lived in Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, He was the first president to inhabit the White House because it was built under George, started building under George Washington and finished his last year. He spent his last year uh, in the White House. And when he moved into the White House, he wrote to Abigail. He said, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. That little plaque still hangs in the East Room of the White House. I've seen it there. Yeah. <laughs> I know, everybody's saying, oh, why don't, they, why don't we just go back to some of these things? Okay. Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry, the firebrand. Uh, lawyer in Virginia. He gave that speech in the House of Representatives, give me liberty or give me death. He became first governor of Virginia under the new. So he left the Constitutional Convention to be the first governor of Virginia when they formed it as a state. So he, the, But he wouldn't have signed it anyway. They asked him to come back and sign it. He said no. He did not sign it. Got that there. Uh, when he was in the House of Ver- Burgess is the, if you read the entire speech, an appeal to arms and to the God of hosts 
is all that is left to us. We have to appeal to military and to God to protect us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God that provides over the destiny of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Yeah. Uh, In his last will and testament, Henry said this, My most precious possession is my faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. We will be talking to Patrick Henry. A couple quick things here. The Great Seal of the United States adopted and first used in 1782. When you look at the, and it's been on the dollar bill, this Great Seal, since 1935. When you look at the seal on the right-hand side, the E Pluribus Unum at the bottom, or or E Pluribus Unum, I'm sorry, is on the eagle on the left side. That says, out of many, one. We come from many different backgrounds to form one. It's not from one, many. It's out of many, one. Okay. And the eye of providence is the eye on top of the pyramid there. That's that's was the universal symbol at that time for the eye of providence. Anuit Cheptus, depending on which type of Latin you speak, is says the eye of providence favors our undertakings. So God is watching over us, is what this great seal says. And then Novus Ordum Secolorum is the new order of the ages. So we established a new order based on God's providence. Uh, in God We Trust, Salmon Chase, who was uh, the Secretary of the Treasury under uh, Abraham Lincoln, said, No nation can be strong in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. So he issued an edict to say, put that on all of our coins uh, during the Civil War. And it started happening in, 18, in the late 1860s. Uh, that's a $20 gold piece you'll see it on. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower made it the official uh, theme in uh, 1954. The Congress passed and said said this is the official uh, motto of the United States. But Eisenhower said, in this way we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace and in war. Now, at the at the same time that Congress and, and Eisenhower are doing this, the Supreme Court, you wonder, how did we lose all this? Well, at the same time, the Supreme Court, they began using the phrase separation of church and state to restrict religious practices, which had been normal for almost 200 years. Things like prayer in public schools, study of the Bible, teaching the Ten Commandments. Uh, how could that happen? How could the, how could Congress and the presidency, two of the branches, be pushing to put a God we trust and the Supreme Court, at the, at the very same decade, taking it out. Okay, I did a little history lesson here. I did a little lookup. You know, they've been talking about which presidents and how many people they appointed to the Supreme Court. And people were upset because our last president appointed three, right? And so I just did a little history. Donald Trump appointed three. Barack Obama won. Confirmed. Not appointed, confirmed. George Bush had two, Bill Clinton two, H.W. Bush two, Reagan two, Jimmy Carter none, Ford one. Nixon had four appointees. Lyndon Johnson two, John Kennedy two, Dwight Eisenhower got five. Harry Truman four. So Eisenhower got some of these later in his career. Harry Truman four. 
Franklin Roosevelt, nine confirmed appointments to the Supreme Court. So if you got nine from Roosevelt and four from Truman, what kind of court do you think you had in the 50s? (laughs) So do elections count? You bet they do. You bet they do. Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Now, what can we do? What is our response? What can we do? John Hancock said this, I conjure you by all that is dear, by all that is honorable, by all that is sacred, not only that you pray, but that you act. So step number one, I believe we should pray for our leaders. Pray for the leaders currently in office, whether you voted for them or not. They need prayers, and God works through prayer. This is a class that prays. I could see that. Vote for men and women of character and virtue character and virtue. If they're not accountable, if they don't express certain beliefs, then how can you trust them to make decisions on your behalf? So you've got to vote for people of character. Read and share the stories of our country's history. I gave you a whole list of books here that are great. Down to the lower part is David Barton, who's over in Alito, uh, Texas. You may know him with the Wall Builders. I've worked with David personally for quite a few years and uh, for at some conventions. And uh, he is the foremost authority and testifies in Congress to what Washington said. Uh, he has prayer warriors in Washington that give spiritual tours of the U.S. Capitol because uh, there's all kinds of spiritual references in the U.S. Capitol. So read and share their stories. And I would encourage you to get involved. I don't know what community you live in. I live in Little Elm. Uh, have you ever been to a, to a, the Frisco, uh, uh, what's it called, the, the uh, commissioners? Uh, the council meeting, yeah. Go to a local council meeting. You know, the only time we go to council meetings is when they're going to build something on our corner that we don't want. <laughs> We need to go and be involved in government. We need to go and support the people at the school district. We need to go to the school board meetings and support these people who are fighting the battle to to educate our children correctly. Uh, so get involved is my advice to you. Okay, I'll leave you with uh, George Washington's general orders, uh, 1776. When he was reading the Declaration of Independence to the troops assembled in New York before the battles of New York. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. Let us never forget that it is in God we still trust. I appreciate your time and your your involvement today. And uh, uh, if you have any questions, come on up later. Be glad to talk to you. Thank you, Harry, for the opportunity. Thank you very much.